All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. So we, we know that we started a new uh, series a couple weeks ago. We're working through the book of Matthew. And so we're taking Wednesday nights and we're going a little bit deeper and we'll have some discussions about this. So be ready to jot some things down and be ready to join in the conversation tonight. That would be great. So just to set, our, to set the tone for where we were, look, we can read the first, the first two verses. Matthew 5, 1 through 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us tonight, that I pray that you'd help the, just your, the time in your word to speak to us. Lord, I pray that we would just focus our hearts right now for a few minutes and just quiet down the noise of the day and whatever's going on and realize that, Lord, we've come here to hear from you, to encourage one another, and uh, to be challenged by you, Holy Spirit. So please help us, and I pray that uh, you'd move in a special way tonight. I pray for the kids downstairs, Lord, I pray that you'd help them to understand the scriptures and that you'd open the eyes of those that need to trust you as their Savior, and just give them a great, a, a great evening down there. Be with those, the leaders, help them uh, to communicate clearly. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So you see that Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at really the major theme. So we'll spend a bit of time in the Sermon on the Mount because that's one of the most significant parts to understanding the whole book of Matthew. Now, remember this. The Sermon on the, um, the Mount is all about Jesus' teaching to change perspective. A couple things that I wanted to clear up right from the beginning. When people look at the Sermon on the Mount, they often make the mistake of looking at it kind of like a formula. So people can look at it and say, well, if I do this formula here, then I'm going to be a good Christian. But really, we should understand the Sermon on the Mount more like the way we understand the Ten Commandments. Now, that means... Are there moral principles that are laid out that we should live in our lives? Of course. But as you look at it, are we going to be able to achieve them perfectly? Like if the Sermon on the Mount is the gateway to Christianity, if the Sermon on the Mount is the entrance to Christianity, then we all would be in really big trouble. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. It's showing us our deficiency. It's showing us our need of Jesus, just like the law. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, we'll see Jesus even talking about the law. And so when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you need to realize that, that Jesus is taking time to change perspective. It's very interesting to note that before the Sermon on the Mount is even given, John chapter 3 has already taken place. I've shared that a couple of times, that Jesus with Nicodemus tells him how to be born again. He tells them that the answer, the, the door to a relationship with Christ is to be born again, to believe in him. So what we see in Matthew is what does it look like to be then a part of God's kingdom? Or what do true kingdom members, how do they behave? And so as we looked at the first section here, we saw this theme on Sunday of inside out happiness. So I'm going to ask you to discuss that with me tonight. And we'll pick up on that theme. So the first thing we notice, though, is in the first verse, we pointed this out, that Jesus sees the multitude. So he's very famous. There's lots of people. But he goes into a mountain in verse number one, 
And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. So there's a, a paring down of the group that's following Jesus. So you see the first discussion point here. Let's talk about this. Jesus separated himself from the multitudes. And it was only his disciples that followed up the mountain to hear his teaching. A quick note there. This would be more than, most likely, almost certainly, more than the 12 disciples. There are a lot of disciples of Jesus. You know, by the time... You know, by, by the time we get to the end, there's like 100, but the number changed sometimes. In fact, at one point, he sends out 70 people to preach. So there's 12 that are what would become the apostles, who are the inner core of disciples. But when we see disciples here, I think it's best to, to look at the whole group, the whole group of people who are followers of Christ. So it's the disciples that follow up the mountain to hear his teaching. So I would ask you this question. It's kind of a two-part question. I'd like you to think about this and talk about it with me. In what ways do we see this same thing happen today? Now, I'd like you to talk about it generally speaking and then apply it to our own lives. So in what ways do we see this same kind of thing, this, what took place there? In what ways do we see that today? And I'm going to shut the air conditioner off because some people said it was cool in here and it's kind of noisy. So you can think about that while we... Do that. Oh, it's much quieter now. I like it. So what do you think? In what ways do, do you see the same kind of phenomenon today? Where there's the crowd there that is, there's the crowd that... Jesus has this whole group of people that have been following him. He's been doing miracles, performing all this. And then, now he's going to go up in the mountain and teach, but the multitude doesn't come. So, in what ways do you, is, are there any ways we see this happen even today? Yes? Same thing tonight. You see the core of the church, more or less, here tonight. And then suddenly you'll see other people that will come on Sunday. Okay. That's, that's pretty hardcore, right? Like, <laughs> there are legitimate reasons why people might not be here tonight. And, and I, I know you know that, but for the ben I, know you, I know what you're saying. So for the benefit of the crowd that's here, we understand that there are legitimate reasons why people can't make it to every single teaching uh, event that happens in the church. But you are right. You see, as a general rule, across America, churches are filled on Sundays, but then whether it's small groups or service or... Bible studies or discipleship, there are fewer people. That's you are absolutely right. Yeah. Even a bigger example than that is Christmas and Easter. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's becoming less of a thing, but that's true. Anybody else? How do we see this? So, like a lot of people will say, yeah, we believe, we believe, we believe, but they don't learn in church. Yeah. What do you think they mean when they say, "I believe, I believe"? Yeah, just kind of a generic thing. Deborah, you were next, I think. Um, I mean, people are curious, like in the season, they were like wanting something interesting to kind of watch and see what happens, but they weren't really looking to have their lives changed or challenged or anything. Yeah, I think that's really good because there's, there's the, you can look at Christianity or Jesus from the outside, and there are some intriguing things. And I, that's a really good observation. A lot of people will look at it and think, oh, what would it be like to be a part of the church? Or what would it be like to do that? But then whenever it requires life change or something, then it's like, nah, I'm not, 
I don't know if I'm going to be radical about this whole thing. Like, I might go to church every now and then and get an uplifting experience, but yeah, not so sure about that. Jake, what were you going to say? Um, just kind of going through the motions. Just got to yeah, absolutely. Yep. I think I was like a deist who like says like, yeah, maybe we God, but like doesn't mean that it's yeah. Like That's for sure. I think this, though, I, 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 I don't disagree with that. I do think, though, this is somebody that's more, they are intrigued by Jesus. They're intrigued by him. But they're not ready to take that step of life commitment. Like, this is, that Jesus is, and that's the paradox of the gospel, is that it's totally free, right? To become a Christian is totally free, yet in the call to receive salvation by faith, we understand that there is going to be a change that is produced. It's not that we... So, do you have to change your life to become a Christian? No. But do you have to be willing for your life to be changed? That's a different thing, right? Because, Mike, you were nodding your head at first. Like, and I think I know why. Because if somebody's like, oh, you know, I want to, you know, all these sins, I just want to keep them. I think the point is this. Some people, are, they think, well, I have to get rid of all these sins before I can become a Christian. No, that's not true. However, if you're saying, well, I'll become a Christian, but I'm going to keep all these sins in my life, then we've got a problem, right? There's no repentance there. So it's not about the action. It's about the position of the heart. That's why Jesus said, that's why the message of the kingdom was repent. Repent, prepare yourself for the kingdom of God. And then there would be works that follow, of course, if you're truly a part of the kingdom. Any other thoughts on this, of the people that, this phenomenon where people are, they're okay with Jesus from a distance, but they don't take the next step up close. These were all really good thoughts. Any more? Um, something I once heard is that um, if you leave the church because of the people, you probably join because of the people in the first place. Yeah, that's really good. Wise man for young years, right there, Jay. That's good. No, it's very true. People, people, if you're left for the, if you didn't hear what he said, if you left because of people, like, oh, they're hypocrites there, or they did this, well, you probably were there for the people. That's a good point. Yeah. What are you? Okay. Any other thoughts on this, this one before we move on? Well, I put a second part to the question here. What about us? Now, we... Maybe at this moment in your life, you'd say, yeah, no, I'm a committed follower of Jesus. But do you ever sense these tendencies creeping up in your own life? Even though you've, like, I'm assuming that, I know everybody in here, I'm assuming you, you wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to follow Jesus. You do. But even disciples sometimes are tempted to go into more the attitude of those multitudes. Anybody, any thoughts on how you've seen that maybe in your own life or Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've gotten invited to go, hey, like, go like, to parties and all that. And it's like, no, like, that's not the thing. Yeah. But, like, it, sometimes it is like, hey, but, like, why not? And then it's like, well, Jesus didn't really do the thing that I mean, so why would you go? Don't bring him with you there, right? Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah, good point. Anything else? Any thoughts about how that, that can even creep into our, our own lives? Good, good evening. Can you get Carla uh, a set of notes? Appreciate it. How, how else uh, can that happen? 
Any thoughts? Yes, Frank. I think it's kind of hard at times because, uh, you know, we're in the world and uh, I'm sure we have a lot of friends that don't know the Lord. But uh, to associate with them, it's, you know, it's not really probably the best thing to do. Uh, but uh, there's times when, there's times when I find myself like by myself and I'd rather not be. I guess, I guess it's, there's times when I'm lonely because uh, I've alienated, not alienated myself from the world. Well, actually, I guess I have. So sometimes you say you would experience a loneliness that, in the sense that to follow Christ is to walk away from the multitudes. And that's a good point. That's why it's so important for the church to be really a family. And... That's, I'm glad you brought that up because one thing for all of us to be aware of, especially those of us that have a big family structure like myself, right? Like you're grinning at me over there. Because it's easy for me, like my social life, my social sphere is pretty secure, right? Because I have a lot of biological family or people that I've known for a long time who are Christians. I went to Christian college, so I've got this big, huge network of Christian people. But many of you, I have to understand that you do not have that, right? It's not because you've done anything wrong. It's because you, here you were, Jesus called you to himself here. He called you out of the world. And so the church has got to do a really, we've got to do a better job, just in general. I'm not calling out anybody particularly, but we've got to do a better job realizing that it can be a lonely walk for people. The church is supposed to be the family of faith. So... That's a good point, because what happens is, it's not that as Christians, it, like, it's not like some cult where we say, okay, you can never talk to the outside people again. You know, that's, that's weird and creepy. <laughs> but what it is, is we understand that we are called to a different kind of life. And so that's going to make some automatic separation from people out there, that we're not going to be able to do certain things. And that can result in some loneliness. That's, that's right. But it is interesting how much time the disciples spent together for that reason. We're kind of off track on a, in a good thing, but Carla first, then, then Mike. Chief wanted to ask if you do receive a question that you did Okay, yeah. So what we're talking about is, just to catch you up to speed, Carla, I'm trying to do this so you can interpret it the easiest way. So there was lots of people who looked at Jesus from a di distance, and only a few that came up close, the disciples. So the question is, how in our lives do we sometimes act that way? Um, so, Mike, what were you going to say? Um, I was just going to have an observation that I had that sometimes, like a lot of times, I'll have deeper conversations with Christian friends than I do with my family. Yeah, that's good. It's true. It happens. And maintaining both, you, you have to maintain relationships in both worlds because it's so important. Because you're called, we're, we're not going to look at it tonight, but the whole point, if you look down at verses 13 and 14, you're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So you can't completely cut off the, that, all those people. That would be wrong. Jesus wouldn't want you to do that. But at the same time, you have to, you can't, you can't, what happens is when you're with the multitude, that type of thinking starts to affect us, right? So that's why, that's why I always encourage people, listen, the simplest thing you can do in life is just 
come to church every time the doors are open. And if you're somebody that has, I see this a lot, Christians who have a strong support system, sometimes they are not as committed to all of the gatherings of the church because they don't feel the need for it as much. But there are people who just need us to be there. They need to come. There are people who just need to come to church and see a group of people there that care about them and will talk to them. And a lot of people need that more than whatever I'm going to say for the talk or for the message. They just need to be around Christians even more. So you're just showing up and being here is one of the best things you can do for people who are struggling with that. Do I walk back with the multitude or do I stay as a disciple of Jesus? Yes. Young people, when they become Christians, college age, teenagers, they think they have to cut off their family. But if they have a, a stable, supportive, loving family that supports them, even if they disagree, those people still have their best interests at heart. Yeah, because your family is a gift of God. And they may not understand, they may, and this, any age you are, because you will deal with this where it seems radical to people in the multitudes. You start to walk with Jesus, and things look radical from the outside. So you do have to walk, you have to realize that your family is also a gift of, that God gave you. So that's a tension that you have to balance. Jesus did say, if you don't hate mother and father, you can't be my disciple, right? So putting all these things in balance is a big, it's important in your life. And there's no like cookie cutter, well, this is how you do it. You've got to pray, you've got to seek the Holy Spirit. One thing I remember hearing is that um, it's okay to you know have people have friends that are in the world that you just have to learn to set boundaries. Yeah, you got to know what those boundaries are, right? Like I will be your friend, but you've just got to know that. Well, if if it's like we can hang out at the football game, but you know I might not be going to the party afterwards, right? And sometimes though, what'll happen is those people will. Not outwardly, but they'll, event, they'll start to cut you off because it's convicting to them. Or they feel, they, they, they feel like, well, if you're not going to do that, you think you're better than us. So you've got you to gotta navigate all that, but it's part of being a disciple of Jesus. And remember, our primary relationship is our relationship with Christ. That's it. Number one most important thing. Um, so yeah, setting those boundaries and making them Biblical is very important. Anybody else thoughts on this before we move on? I didn't think it was going to go in this direction. I'm glad it did, though. I think that... Um, I'm trying to... Have, I had this idea, this thought. I'm trying to fit it into this whole discussion. Because I've been watching a little bit of uh, men and women who... Uh, are very well known, very popular in our culture, some of them in the Christian culture, who have over the last few years begun to change different positions and take positions that are contrary to the Bible yeah. because the culture has taken positions contrary to the Bible. Right. And, and um, so I guess. In this, when I, when, in, your, in your question... Yeah, that's, it's a different avenue, but it's exactly, it applies for sure. So they followed, uh, it was his disciples that followed him up the mountain. So 
when you think about climbing a mountain, you have to exert yourself. And uh, there has to be effort. And then when you're living out the Word of God the way that it's been taught, you have to exert yourself. You have to... Uh, you just can't... As soon as the culture changes, you can't just change because that's a popular position. Right. Um, so... Yeah, we will live with Jesus on the mountain. We don't come down and feel the pulse of the multitude, you know, as far as how far we're going to go. People have lived with Jesus on the mountain and all of a sudden decide to walk down the mountain and go with the crowd. Yeah. So. But you have to wonder if they were really on the mountain or if they were there so long as their people were there and their sphere and their influence. So, yeah. And, and when you're talking about celebrities or uh, evangelical leaders, you know, there's the popularity allure that comes in. They want to be well thought of. They want to, they'd rather be well thought of by the multitudes than by the Lord. So that's a good thought as well. Okay. Great. That's, a, that's really good. We took half of our time. So I don't think we'll get through all this, but that's fine. We'd just like to see where these things go. So we now get into the meat of his teaching, and that's in verse 3. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So let's remember a few key terms, or at least the one key term here on the bottom of your front page, and that is that word blessed. And uh, to be blessed means to be happy, but not in a artificial or temporary kind of sense. It's that idea of full satisfaction, that inside, in my life, I feel fully satisfied. I have all that I need. We talked a lot on Sunday about how that's really what everybody's looking for. And all that we do in our lives, all the studying and working and meeting people and networking, you put all those things together, it's because in some way, we're looking to have a more meaningful, satisfied life. We're looking to be blessed. Everybody's looking to be blessed. They just wouldn't say it that way. But everybody wakes up in the morning and they want to get blessed. They're hoping that their paycheck is going to bless them. They're hoping that their relationship is going to bless them. Unfortunately, some people are hoping that the hit from the, the substance is going to bless them. That's what they're looking for. They just don't use a spiritual word like blessed. But everybody's looking for a blessing. So we said this. Most people live in the realm of outside-in happiness. But Jesus teaches us to live in his realm of inside-out happiness. Inside-out happiness. Now, there is a, when I say that, though, I should clarify. Because there is a, a more modern viewpoint where people say, well, don't look for happiness out there, look for happiness in here. And what do they mean by that? Follow your heart. What, what, what does that mean to most people? Like if you say, don't look for happiness out there, find the happiness in here. Do what's best for you. Do what's best for you, yeah. Peace. Peace, yeah. Do what you want. Yeah. If it feels good, do it. 
Yeah. So why do people believe that? Because the world advertises it that way. <coughs> well, if they, if they're just following what they want, two things come out of that. They basically become their own god. Yeah. And there's no authority for them. Yeah. Okay. Right. But what do they believe? What is fundamentally underneath all that? Because there's some very smart people, some very educated people, very philosophical people. And you need my dad? Yeah, I think they need you downstairs. Probably a transportation issue or something. Um, there's some very smart people, very philosophical people, people that you'll read their quotes all over, and they will tell you, don't look for happiness out there. Look for happiness in here. Now, do you think that they're just saying, like, if it feels good, do it, or all that? Or is there some undergirding belief that they have there? Um, probably trying to get others to, be, to have a high self-esteem, no matter what anyone else thinks of Okay. You're not in your head. You have something wise to say? Well, I was just thinking it's kind of twofold too because you hear all over social media today, like, if it makes you happy, it must be right. Yeah. If it makes you happy, it's going to fulfill you. Or you hear, you know, you have to fill your cup before you can fill anybody else's cup. Right. So, so there's, I think part of this is, not to get too philosophical, but there's an underlying belief that the ultimate good is found within you, Right. You don't, the, the modern viewpoint is not that you find, if you want to call it God, you can call it God. This is modern spirituality. If you want to call it God, call it God. If you want to call it the force of the spirit around you, call it that. Whatever you want to call it, that's fine, but you are going to find it in the quiet of your mind. And when you get all of the outside, the point is that you can find goodness and peace inside you, if you can just quiet down everything out there. Now, this is a reaction because many people live materialistic outside-in lives. And they think, well, I'm going to find happiness out there. I'm going to find happiness out there. How has that been working for people? Pretty poorly, right? So what they say is this. You can't find it out there, so you must be able to find it in here. And people will talk about the divine spark or... They'll talk about something spiritual within you, connected to the universe. Are you, are you familiar with all these terms? Like you, This is psychobabble, spiritual babble today. These are people that you meet that will say, well, I'm not very religious, but I'm spiritual. And so I look inside. They're making the assumption that if they look deep enough in here, they will find the answers. Now, that's a, that's a reaction Something they know is wrong, which is good. So we need to praise what is good. What is good is they look on the outside and they're like, yeah, money can't... And you'll find some wonderful people that are like, well, yeah, money can't make me happy. Other people can't make me happy. My job's not going to make me happy. And so then they turn inside. But the problem is eventually you're, the, the deeper you look inside you, you're going to let yourself down eventually too. 
Yeah, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful. It deceives us. And so then people are turning to very self-centered lives, looking for their own personal fulfillment. Now, I'm not, you know, there's a, it, because there's no religious formula for this, you can find hundreds of expressions of it. But at the heart of it, that's the idea, that you have something good or something right inside you, and if you just get in there, that's why meditation is very popular. Get the, empty the mind of all outside thought and just think on nothing, and you'll arrive at a place of peace. That's the, the modern idea. That is not what we're talking about when we say that Jesus gives us an inside-out happiness. What we're saying is that Jesus does a radical transformation inside us. And he actually gives us a new nature. A new nature that is not a sinful... Now, do you have a sinful nature? But you also have a, a nature that has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins has he made alive. So he made us alive inside by the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit communicating with our spirit. Before you were a Christian, you didn't have that. It wasn't there. So there's a new desire. There's new impulses that are guided by the spirit and guided by the word of God. That happens through an internal transformation. Again, Jesus talked about it in John chapter 3. You, Nicodemus, you have to be what? Born again. You have to be born again, Nicodemus. There has to be something new. And so what's happening in, in Matthew is we're seeing a blessedness that comes only to people who are transformed by the power of Christ on the inside. Because these statements are so paradoxical. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the ones who mourn. Like this doesn't make sense. Because you look inside and there's mourning or there's sadness. But Jesus can change all of that. So he teaches us to live in that realm of inside out happiness. So let's just finish with this discussion on the top of uh, page number back. <laughs> they don't have numbers. Let's just end with this. And I would encourage you to think through the rest of it. I mean, it's a good, these questions are good for discussion at home. Or thought at home. But I'll just, the top one. What about us, though? We have the Holy Spirit of God if we have been changed inside out. But what happens? What are some evidences in our lives, though, that we revert back to that outside-in kind of happiness? Because it happens to us. What are some evidences or what are some signs that, you know, even though I know that Jesus is doing this from the inside, what, what sometimes happens in our lives where we start to look more like outside-in people than inside-out people? Yeah? So when I'm working and, like, my job, I love it. Just thinking of that happiness of being able to help somebody, yep. and just thinking that it's it just happened, like it's 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 part of my job. Right. It wasn't from not knowing God, but I'm not. I get a lot 
So you're, you're tempted to think that it's the job that's giving you all that satisfaction instead of realizing that it's Jesus doing it through that work that he's given you. That's a, that's a really good thought. I like that, Terry. Anybody else? Evidence that we're, we're starting to go back to these outside-in lives? Yeah. Kind of similar to what Terry said, but like um, the gym and running, uh, how like it does, it is a bit cathartic, but you, we have to remember like who gave us the ability to do, do those things, who um, lessened that time that we can spend. Yeah, because is that um, like that? workout high or whatever that I've never experienced in my life. Um, that whole thing that, that they talk about, um, like that, is that a gift from God? Yeah, of course it is. So what can happen though, like, you, you, like if we don't think about those things the way you said it, what happens over time is you start to find your validation from that experience instead of God the gift of God through that experience. So what happens if you have an injury or if you have an accident or just old age? You can't do those things anymore. Right? But what I'm saying is if you found ultimate fulfillment in those things, that's when they let you down. Because some of these things are deceptive. They will not let you down for years and years and years and years. Then something happens and it makes us question. Now, I don't think any of us get this 100% right. Like, I think we come to these points where, you know, I've heard stories of people like, you know, they would have said, they would have said, no, my full fulfillment is in Jesus, and then something's taken away from them. And then there's this struggle in life. Well, what is it? What was my identity? What was my. Yeah, because you lost that. Yeah. So I think what happens sometimes is. I listened to one of my favorite authors was uh, was um, one of my favorite authors was Tim Keller who just went home to be with the Lord, and Tim Keller went through a uh, um, he went through a terminal illness with cancer. Now he wrote a very popular book a few years ago called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Before he had the cancer. He wrote the book on pain and suffering, then he got cancer, and then a, few, a couple months ago he died. I listened to some of his last interviews, and they basically asked him the question, well, what has changed in your perspective since you wrote that first book, but then you had the pain, then you went through this tragedy? What's changed in your perspective? Now, it's not that he said nothing changed. He didn't say that. But what he said was, he said that he felt that what had happened in all those years is just by studying the Bible, by focusing on Christ, that he was prepared. That when it came, he was ready for it. Not that there was no tears and tragedy or whatever, but he's like, he knew what to do. He knew what to do with the sorrow. He knew what to do with the grief. And while it was still hard and difficult, it, it didn't rock his world. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. Because it's not that he didn't learn anything after, but that basically what he says is all the things that he had studied about Jesus and come to know Jesus, 
They, it was there when he needed it because he had spent all his life walking with him that way. So I think that kind of applies to this whole, if we, if we learn the practices now of, you know, my ultimate fulfillment is in Christ, when we do lose some of those things, because at some point we'll lose things that mean a lot to us or people. It's going to happen. We will experience the loss. Will we have those tools, those spiritual tools to then turn our attention back to Christ? And that's why he can say things in here like, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, that's, uh, any, any thoughts on that before we wrap it up tonight? Yes? Yes. Thank you for sharing that. That was and that was encouraging to us as you go through that. Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us this time together and for us to just talk through your word and let it speak to us. Lord, we just pray that um, you would help us to just remind ourselves every day, or Holy Spirit, that you would remind us every day that our sufficiency is in you and our happiness, the blessedness can only come from you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at or send us a message on Facebook. 
You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.